and then the only other time we could take off is our paid time that we had to earn the previous year. Yeah, that does seem ridiculous. They would never let airline pilots do that. No, they wouldn't. And thanks for noticing, Newsmax? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, where it's going to be a hell of an election year, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet's and the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, fine affiliates all, just to name a few, by the way. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another all-too-thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Oh, I don't know if you can be too thrilling. We'll see. Hi, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Hi. Uh, as the nation braces now for what could be a crippling railway workers' strike, more on that shortly, the uh, great Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect will join us momentarily to discuss a huge, a huge win for labor, specifically for some 550,000 fast food workers out here in California that was sealed last week by the state's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. But before we get to all of that, very quickly, the final primary elections of the midterm season were held on Tuesday in Delaware, Rhode Island and New Hampshire with the critical midterm elections now less than eight weeks away. Oh, boy. By the way, uh, if you haven't checked to make sure you're still registered, still on the rolls, have not been thrown off of them now is a really good time to do that <laughs> indeed it is because it does happen <sighs> yes it does we have we've discussed in uh, detail on yesterday's broadcast the terrible voting systems forced on voters in delaware the marginally better hand-marked paper ballot systems used in rhode island and the even better hand-marked paper ballot system used in New Hampshire, where about 40% of the towns employ democracy's gold standard of hand-counting those hand-marked paper ballots at the precinct in public on election night before ballots are moved anywhere. If you missed that program, you can download it, of course, for free 
at bradblog.com. As to the known results of noteworthy races in those uh, three states today, even as most of the computer tallied ballots, other than the hand-counted ones in New Hampshire, remain completely unverified by actual human beings today, Let's run through just a few of the noteworthy contests, most of which have to do with how Trumpy the GOP candidates chosen by Republican voters actually are. Let's start in Delaware, in any event, since it's the easiest, with just one single statewide contested election and no contested House or Senate races. In this case, the contested race was for state auditor on the Democratic side, where the party avoided a bit of a disaster, according to Washington Post Dave Weigel, by defeating state auditor, Democratic state auditor Kathy McGinnis. She won in 2018, but then she got convicted on three misdemeanor corruption charges. Oh, hello. But was running again anyway. She, well, she appears to have been soundly defeated by a more than two-to-one margin by uh, Lydia York, who received the party's endorsement as well in Delaware. Meanwhile, in, a, in Rhode Island, Governor Dan McKee, who had been the lieutenant governor until he replaced Governor Gina Raimondo, who left uh, the job to become Joe Biden's Secretary of Commerce. She, uh, I'm sorry, he, Daniel, appears to have fended off several Democratic challengers, one of them fairly narrowly, to become the winner of the Democratic nomination for a full term as governor in Rhode Island, he is expected to coast to victory in November in the very Democratic-leaning state against Republican challenger Ashley Callis, who easily won the GOP nomination on Tuesday. The most interesting and or contested races of the night were in the great state of New Hampshire, where the disgraced former president dis declared on his social media website, quote, nice, the Trumpiest people all won in New Hampshire last night. And while I don't know for sure, I think there are actually many Democrats who are likely to agree <laughs> with him on that, especially when it comes to the U.S. Senate race and what Republicans had expected to be a very flippable seat currently held by Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, who won the uh, won the seat six years ago by the barest of margins, just one thousand 17 votes out of about 700,000 cast. Uh, at the time, she unseated the Republican Senator, Kelly Ayotte. Well, this time, uh, the race for that Senate seat is probably not going to be quite as close, but we will see. Retired Army Brigadier General Donald Bulduck appears to have narrowly won New Hampshire's Senate Republican primary on Tuesday, setting up another test of whether a far-right Conspiracy theorist and election denier can appeal to more moderate general election voters in the fall. If the numbers hold, uh, Bulldock will have defeated New Hampshire Senate President Chuck Morse and the establishment Republicans who tried to stifle Bulldock's ascendancy, fearing that he's too extreme to win a general election. Morse conceded early Wednesday morning, though ballots are still being counted. It was a pretty close race. In the final weeks of the campaign, a PAC linked to an ally of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell dumped $4 million into the race in hopes of boosting Morse. But it looks like Mitch lost again. 
Neither candidate benefited this time around from Trump's endorsement because he didn't give out one. Both tried to get it. Bolduc, who has suggested the FBI may need to be abolished and has called for the 17th Amendment to be abolished as well. That's the direct election of senators by the people. Uh, well, he attracted attention for calling New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris uh, Sununu, who is a moderate by today's party standards. Uh, he called him, quote, a Chinese communist sympathizer. <laughs> oh, dear. He also attracted attention for falsely claiming that Trump was the winner of the 2020 presidential election. Sununu said about Bulldog on a uh, New Hampshire radio station, quote, he's not a serious candidate. And if he were the GOP nominee, I have no doubt we would have a much harder time adding politely. He's kind of a conspiracy theorist type candidate. Well, that conspiracy theorist type candidate uh, appears to have won the GOP nomination and will now face Democratic incumbent Senator Maggie Hassan, who easily won her primary on Tuesday, further eroding GOP hopes of winning back the majority in the upper chamber of Congress in November. But we will see two other pro-Trump candidates won their U.S. House primaries in New Hampshire. Carolyn Levitt in the first congressional district and Bob Burns in the second of the two of the state's two uh, congressional districts, leaving some in the party questioning whether they will be able to broaden their appeal beyond the GOP base come November. Both House seats are currently occupied by Democrats, but Republicans have been bullish about chances of flipping one or both of them. Major changes in the state's two congressional districts were expected this year, thanks to the uh, once-a-decade redistricting process, but that did not happen. Earlier this year, the Republican-controlled state legislature redrew those two districts to give the GOP an advantage. Uh, but Sununu, who easily won his own primary, by the way, for a fourth term on Tuesday, a fourth two-year term, uh, he will run against Democrat Tom Sherman, who ran unopposed. Sununu vetoed the redistricting plan, and the maps were then updated by the courts with very few changes. New Hampshire's first district flipped five different times in seven elections before Democratic Congressman Chris Pappas won his first term in 2018. He faced no primary opponents this year, while more than 10 Republicans vied for the chance to challenge him. The race largely came down to two Trump acolytes who sort of beat the hell out of each other during the campaign as to which of the two was the Trumpiest. And there was actually an upset in this race. Caroline Levitt, a 25-year-old hard-right Republican who served as an assistant in Trump's White House press office, won the party's primary nomination on Tuesday. The race had devolved into a very nasty battle with Matt Mowers, a former Trump administration colleague, over who carried the mantle of Trumpism. If Levitt wins in November against Democratic Congressman Pappas, she would be among the youngest people ever elected to Congress. The Constitution actually requires House members to be at least 25 years old to serve. Levitt just turned 25 last month. So she defeated the uh, appears to have defeated the 33 year old Mowers, who served in Trump's State Department and on his 2016 campaign. He entered the race a year ago, presumed to be the front runner. He benefited from a whole bunch of cash, more than a million dollars from 
an, an outside PAC aligned with uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy. As the Times describes Levitt, <laughs> she adopted Trump's brash style and taste for inflammatory statements and was backed by a host of hard right Republicans in Congress. In her campaign, Levitt unequivocally repeated Trump's lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. And having looked at a whole bunch of her campaign ads last night, I'll tell you what, if she wins in November, I think the party will have itself another Marjorie Taylor Greene to contend with. Oh, boy. But a smarter one. Here's one of Levitt's ads just to give you an idea. The modern-day Democrat Party is hell-bent on driving America into socialism. We will not allow them to win any longer. I was proud to work in President Trump's White House where we fought against the fake news and the political elites on the front lines every single day. We need to ensure border security. We need to ban critical race theory. We need to balance the checkbook of Washington. That's why I'm running, to put New Hampshire first, to put America first. Caroline Levitt for Congress. I'm Caroline Levitt, and I approve this message. So you get the idea. She uh, enters the general election, however, somewhat bruised by the bitter primary with Maurer's campaign, uh, which operated a website branding her, quote, fake MAGA Caroline, accusing her of, quote, never holding a real job outside the swamp. She was also registered to vote from her, quote, penthouse apartment in D.C., where she lived before moving back to New Hampshire to run for office. Levitt, however, pushed back hard, like in this campaign ad targeting Mowers, who served as chief of staff to Dr. Dr. Deborah Burks, who had headed up Trump's so-called covid task force. No one's worked harder to sabotage President Trump than Deborah Burks. And Matt Mowers stood with Burks while she was hiding crucial information from President Trump during the pandemic. It's no surprise Matt Mowers served as Burks' chief of staff, even calling her a national treasure. All the while, Burks was forcing unconstitutional COVID lockdowns on us, destroying New Hampshire's economy and killing local jobs. Matt Mowers stands with his anti-Trump liberal friends, not New Hampshire. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, that's some insanity right there. You think? So uh, that's from also from Levitt. Um, I, you get the idea. Uh, it, it should be a fun eight weeks between now and November 8 in New Hampshire. Uh, and frankly, whether she wins or loses, I am predicting right now that Levitt, Levitt will be a new GOP star. Pappas, for his part, wasted little time going on the offensive against Levitt on Wednesday, saying, quote, I will fight with everything I've got to stop extreme politicians like Caroline from hijacking our democracy. In the uh, second congressional district in New Hampshire, the pro-Trump Robert Burns narrowly won the Republican nomination in a seven-way race to face five-term incumbent Democrat Congresswoman Annie Custer in a general election race that the GOP sees as potentially very competitive. We shall see. As always, none of those races are yet certified, and sometimes tabulation problems reveal themselves in the days or even weeks after Election Day. So if there are any changes, of course, or questions, we will let you know. Let's take a quick break here and a sharp left turn, if you will, to discuss some labor issues and an impending railway strike that could throw sand into all of the midterm election year gears. I warned you these were unconventional times, 
So, yeah, continue to ignore all of the so-called conventional wisdom between here and November. We'll also be joined by Harold Meyerson ahead as well. Another crazy day on the broadcast, just like all the other days these days. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. try, shall we? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Transit systems across the country were on edge on Wednesday amid the threat of a freight rail worker strike, making preparations ahead of possible travel disruptions that could affect hundreds of thousands of rail customers. Amtrak said Wednesday afternoon it is canceling all long-distance trains starting Thursday. Some regional transit agencies said they are preparing for service stoppages, service stoppages as early as Thursday evening, ahead of a possible 12.01 a.m. Friday shutdown. The disruptions to passenger systems that operate on freight lines would be felt across several major metropolitan areas, including Washington, Chicago, out here in Los Angeles, the strike threat also eliminated most Amtrak service outside the Northeast Corridor, forcing travelers to find other modes of transportation or cancel plans at the last minute. The Biden administration has sought to resolve the labor conflict to avert the possibility of one of the most disruptive strikes in recent U.S. history. The Association of American Railroads estimates a shutdown could cost the economy more than $2 billion a day and, quote, could idle more than 7,000 trains daily and trigger retail pro product shortages, widespread manufacturing shutdowns, job losses, and disruptions to hundreds of thousands of passenger rail customers. Well, that's just about all that we need right now, ain't it? The uh, Washington Post's Jeff Stein notes that, uh, quote, even though the deadline for reaching a deal is midnight on Thursday, the threat of a strike could affect things even before that. Industry groups are saying we could see grain shipments on trains stopping as early as Thursday morning. To which the American Prospect's David Dayan noted uh, this, quote, deliberate stoppage of various shipments by the companies looks more like a lockout than a strike. A railroad worker strike that would shut down much of the major transportation infrastructure in the U.S. is now looming. A stoppage, whoever stops it first is one which could impact nearly every part of the economy, from food to energy to retail. But as the Prospect's labor reporter Mike Elk notes, the main issues are not wages, but time off from work. 
The impasse, he explains, is tied to disagreements between management and labor over sick time and penalties for missing work. Two of the nation's largest rail carriers, Union Pacific and BNSF, a subsidiary of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, have attendance policies that penalize workers, including firing for going to routine doctor visits or attending to family emergencies. As former Labor Secretary Robert Reich noted on Twitter today, the Warren Buffett-owned railway BNSF tracks time off with points. Missing a single day for something like a doctor's visit can result in workers losing points. Run out of points? And you can be fired. Is it any is it any wonder, he asks, why 57,000 railroad workers are planning to strike? Elk reports that railroads have found themselves under capacity to deal with an uptick in demand for goods during the pandemic, thanks to years of deliberate understaffing to maximize profits. Critics claim that the scheduling policies are all an attempt to squeeze as much out of existing workers as possible rather than, you know, hire new ones. And as the railroads have laid off more and more staff, they have forced workers to regularly work 80 to 90 hours a week, leading to an exodus of staff. Conductors and engineers say that they can be on call for 14 consecutive days, no weekends off, and are expected to drop everything at any time of day to go to work. They say the policy is, quote, destroying their lives, as The Washington Post reports it. Dennis Pierce, president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, told the paper, quote, all we're asking is folks to be able to go to routine doctor's visits without pay but they have refused to accept our proposals. The average American would not know that we get fired for going to the doctor. This one thing has our members most enraged. We have guys who were punished for taking time off for a heart attack and for COVID. It's inhumane, he said. To give you just a little bit more of a sense of that, here is David Manning, a railroad railroad worker today on, of all places, the far-right Newsmax outlet. David, we did reach out to the Association of American Railroads, and they say that workers get sick days and paid time off. Uh, but what I want to talk to you about is what does this mean for Americans if you do go on strike? Well, what whoever told you we get six days, our sick days is manipulating the data. We get paid time off that we earned the previous year before. Before the new policy came about, we were allowed to take five days off and two weekend days off a month. Now we could take virtually one day unpaid off a month. And then the only other time we could take off is our paid time that we had to earn the previous year. Yeah, that does seem ridiculous. They would never let airline pilots do that. Um, is, that exactly. issue, is that issue number one? Um, for members of the 100 percent is number one and if we go on strike yes it could hurt the economy it could be bad for society but we don't want to do that none yeah. of us want to do that well and i know amtrak's we're already not, suspended we're some. not asking we're not asking for the world here we're asking for a few days off a month to spend with our family instead of living on a train we spend 240 to 260 hours a month sitting on these trains or sitting at the hotel rooms wow. away from our families. That's wow. When I leave my house to go to work, I'm gone for 
at least two to two and a half to three days. I didn't come realize home, that, David. I, I and then so, I come home, and I'm only allowed to be home for 10 hours. Wow. And then I can be called to go right back to be gone and, for three days. You have a family? Yes. Kids? My kid is 17 years old. Wow. Wow, indeed. Yeah, and for Newsmax to finally have it dawn yeah. on them that, hey, maybe this isn't good for some workers. Well, actually, I was kind of stunned to hear that on Newsmax, of all <laughs> places. Too. And then I realized, oh, yeah, Warren Buffett controls the huge rail company, BNSF, uh, and right-wingers hate Warren Buffett, so maybe, they, maybe they'll accidentally be on the right side of this issue and stand up for labor for a change because it allows them to oppose Buffett. Uh, if so, I'll take it. Thanks, Newsmax. But also, no doubt, is because a rail strike would come at a terrible time for the for the Biden administration just you know weeks before the midterms. So far, the rail operators have not budged on these union demands for a policy addressing addressing their concerns. A federal mandated cooling off period now ends on Friday at you know twelve oh one which opens the possibility of a strike by the weekend and, as noted, what appears to be lockouts even before that. For decades, many railroad workers have been forced to put up with this chaotic lifestyle because the Railway Labor Act actually gives the power to Congress to block any strike by workers. And time and again, when workers have moved to strike, Congress has stepped in uh, to block them in the name of ensuring the free movement of commerce across the country. What happens this time right now is anyone's guess has noted the timing could not be worse. We will, of course, keep our eyes on that. But for some better labor news today, and yes, there is some here in California for more than half a million fast food workers. So let's take a quick break here. We'll be joined by the American Prospects Harold Meyerson on a new measure just signed into law by California's Governor Gavin Newsom that Myerson lauds as an achievement by labor unions in the Golden State that has succeeded, quote, beyond anyone's wildest expectations. That sounds good. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I know you're tired, I know you're hurting I know you broke down to the bone But your bills are paid and the smiling faces Waiting on you at home and It ain't always easy It ain't ever like you planned all But man, ain't it working, working man Working woman, too. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, just after our Labor Day break, we noted new polling finding that public approval among Americans for labor unions was at 71%. That is the highest level of support for unions 
in nearly 60 years, since 1965, according to Gallup's annual pre-Labor Day survey, which they have been carrying out since the 1930s, when support for unions at the time in 1936 was 72%, just one point higher than it is today in 2022. Paradoxically, however, as progressive author and lecturer Deepak Bhargava recently observed in his email newsletter, only 6% of workers are in private sector unions, the lowest share in a century. The decades-long movement from the right to crush private and public labor unions has been an effective one. But progressives are finally finding new ways to push back, forming new labor unions at massive private companies like Amazon and Starbucks. And progressive politicians are also realizing that that support for labor is, in fact, a very popular idea. On Labor Day, California's Governor Gavin Newsom announced via a video posted to Twitter that he had signed landmark legislation in the state to empower fast food workers with new wage and workplace protections to support their health, safety and welfare. Well, happy Labor Day, everybody. And I think one of the things that makes California a special place by definition is we're the fifth largest economy in the world. But that didn't happen by chance. We've long had a formula, a formula for success around growth and inclusion. So many states forget the latter part of that formula. But I'm really proud of California and I'm proud of the men and women of organized labor, particularly on Labor Day, for their extraordinary work over the course of decades to empower workers, to give them voice and choice and to fight not just for wages, but better working conditions. Same time, we got work to do. At the same time, we recognize there are sectors of our economy where we're falling a bit short. And one of those areas is fast food workers. And I want to thank Assemblymember Holden in particular for AB257 and all of his hard work, a bill that empowers our workers, particularly in that sector, giving them more voice, giving them more choice, creating a new council. And I'm proud on Labor Day to sign that bill and to shrine it in law. In a press release from the governor's office announcing the signing of that bill, AP257, Newsom noted, quote, California is committed to ensuring that the men and women who have helped build our world-class economy are able to share in the state's prosperity. Today's action, he said, gives hardworking fast food workers a stronger voice and seat at the table to set fair wages and critical health and safety standards across the country. In recent years, as you may know, fast food workers around the nation have been pushing to unionize workers while demanding a $15 national minimum wage. Just after the California State Senate and Assembly had both approved AB 257 in late August, and as we were waiting to see if the state's Democratic governor, Governor Newsom, uh, who clearly now has presidential ambitions of his own, waiting to see if he would sign this new bill into law, the great Harold Meyerson at the American Prospect explained, Plan A... When the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, began its fight for $15 and a union for fast food workers a decade ago was, well, to unionize fast food workers and win them a livable hourly wage of $15. 
At the time, the canniest union strategist I knew told me that unionizing fast food workers was a pipe dream, that there were far too many outlets owned by far too many franchisees who effectively shielded such corporate behemoths as McDonald's from the threat of a unionized workforce. Classic unionization studies in the mid-20th century by academics, Myerson explained, demonstrated that the only cost-efficient organizing campaigns focused on massive workplaces. Going Taco Bell by Taco Bell, he said, would never really work, though Starbucks, to be sure, may prove the exception to this rule, Myerson explains. Today... Ten years after Mary Kay Henry, the president of SEIU, committed to the $15 and a union campaign, the union still, ten years later, can't claim any fast food workers as dues-paying members. More than a thousand Starbucks baristas have voted to join, but they are not members until they have a contract. But a Plan B fallback has succeeded, writes Meyerson, beyond anyone's wildest expectations. What is Plan B in this case? Well, part of that just came to fruition in the state of California with the signature of the governor on Labor Day. Joining us now to explain is Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect magazine, where he has served since 2001, as he also for many years served as a weekly columnist for the Washington Post, executive editor for the LA Weekly, and still contributes to the Los Angeles Times and other publications. Oh, Mr. Meyerson, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Always good to be here, Brad. So if, uh, Harold, the SEIU's Plan A was to fight for store-by-store unionization of fast food workers to demand a $15 minimum wage, what was Plan B? Because as you describe it, frankly, Plan B, the fallback plan here, as you call it, uh, and sort of built into the fabric of this new California law affecting more than half a million fast food workers in California, it actually sounds like an arguably better plan in many respects than Plan A. Well, it sort of is, but I would call what Gavin Newsom signed into law on Labor Day really Plan C. Okay. Uh, Plan B, remember it was $15 in a union, and Mm -hmm. it was really this campaign which led to first a handful of cities like Seattle and then uh, San Francisco and L.A. Mm -hmm. to raise their own minimum wage to $15, and then a number of states, I think eight states, have followed through on that, including California and New York, mm-hmm. and with some cost of living increases built in, so that the uh, uh, minimum wage in California now, I think, is $15.50. So uh, that was Plan B. What, mm-hmm. what, what Gavin uh, Newsom signed into law, I would almost call Plan C. <laughs> uh, that is, given that states and cities have no jurisdiction, have no control over unionization that is preempted by the national labor relations act Mm -hmm. and unfortunately the the national labor relations act though it worked beautifully for about its first ten years from nineteen thirty five through uh... shortly after world war two to do what it was intended to do which is to give workers a chance to unionize and collectively bargain Mm -hmm. has now been weakened over the uh, subsequent 70 years uh, by uh, court decisions and, and other matters sort of uh, scaling down what uh, what it could do to protect workers, and by the vehement resistance of almost universally employers across the country 
So that actually unionizing workers uh, has proved so difficult that, as you said right at the outset, only 6% of private sector workers actually are union members, mm-hmm. whereas right after World War II, it was over a third mm. of, uh, of the entire nation's workforce. So that's a big change. So what the bill that Gavin Newsom signed does, and it's really groundbreaking, there's been nothing like it uh, uh, really in, uh, in American history, mm. is it sets up what's called sectoral bargaining, where, uh, in which uh, representatives of workers uh, in an entire industry sit down with uh, representatives of management mm-hmm. in, uh, in the industry, and in this case with a couple of state officials as well. Uh, and they set standards for the industry. Uh, the workers don't come out of this as members of SEIU or any other union. What they do come out of it with is a process, a, a group of ten, four mm-hmm. worker representatives, including two workers themselves, four management representatives, and the governor's, the head of the governor's labor department and uh, finance department, I think, uh, to craft uh, wage and benefit uh, and workplace safety and other standards for uh, every worker in a uh, in a chain fast food outlet mm-hmm. in California that has at least. 100 outlets nationwide. So, you know, McDonald's, Jack Mm -hmm. in the Box, Starbucks, you name it. Um, Sectoral bargaining is actually fairly common uh, in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there it evolved on top of, uh, you know, a much higher level of unionization of of their workers than than we have here in the United States. Um, But, uh, and we have had kind of privately worked out versions of sectoral bargaining in this country. Uh, in, in the old days when there were really just three auto companies and one mm-hmm. hugely powerful union at the time, the United mm-hmm. Auto Workers, the UAW would, you know, strike and get a contract with one of the big three, and then that would be viewed as the contract the other two. Uh-huh. Uh, say you strike General Motors, you get a contract, then Ford and Chrysler sign essentially the same contract, mm-hmm. uh, that was called pattern bargaining. Uh, this is bargaining in which, uh, uh, not necessarily preceded by a strike, though it's certainly preceded by a level of union activism, otherwise Newsom wouldn't have signed the bill. Um, that was part uh, pattern bargaining, but the government didn't really play a role. This is the first time the government has, you know, passed a law that sets up the uh, uh, what is sectoral bargaining for the whole sector. It's, it's, it's really, you know, quite groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a first in American labor relations, and it's been a long time since there's been a pro-worker first uh-huh. in American labor relations. Yeah, Many you, decades. You describe it as something new under the American sun in your article at the, uh, at the Prospect, but you also note there, there has been some sort of sectoral bargaining uh, of a sort. Uh, you you described the Depression-era Congress in 1935, the Motor Carrier Act, which set a floor uh, beneath which interstate trucking companies could not lower their rates. Was was that able to be done at the federal level? How, how is that different? And was that able to be done at the federal level because of the interstate nature of the, the trucking business? And would that yeah, otherwise... This actually goes back, this yeah. actually goes back to railroad law. Uh-huh. Um, uh, at, uh, there had been uh, a railway act passed well before the New Deal uh, that uh, 
regulated railroad rates in part uh, to keep competition from running amok. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if there was ever an industry prayed uh, to uh, bankruptcy in the 19th century, it was railroads. They mm -hmm. started up, they failed. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the pre-New Deal Congresses didn't want, uh, didn't want that to happen, so they sort of set rate regulation. Mm -hmm. Well, by the mid-1930s, interstate trucking was relatively new, uh, but it was clearly going to be, you know, they could see it was going to be as big a deal eventually, if not bigger, than rail. And so they passed a law uh, that said, um, you know, to get approval for interstate trucking, and since it's interstate, it had to be at the national level, mm -hmm. obviously. This was about long-haul trucking, which, as I said, was, was a new industry at that mm -hmm. point. Um, you know, you had to agree not to uh, uh, cut your rates below a certain level. Mm -hmm. And this was also part of, you know, depression legislation, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, there was no, uh, with incredible high levels of unemployment, there was no spending, uh, wages had been cut everywhere, um, and the economy was in a, a downward spiral that mm -hmm. only federal standards and federal intervention and direct federal employment could uh, uh, reverse. And, and, and so this also ensured that, uh, you know, a new company not only could, um, you know, uh, enter the market with really cheap rates, but that that wouldn't be uh, the cause of truck workers wor having to work for essentially nothing. So, so that, that was, uh, there wasn't really, you know, uh, this wasn't related to unionizing long-haul truckers. Mm -hmm. um, the first attempt t to do that, uh, and it wasn't really long-haul truckers, it was just truckers who drove across city lines had been a, uh, a strike in Minneapolis in 1934, parentheses, the only labor action in American history that was actually led by Trotskyists. Uh, <laughs> I thought, they, anyway, all, I thought uh, they all were, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I was told. There, there, there were never that many Trotskyists, oh, period. Okay, okay. <laughs> Who knew? Well, uh, but Harold, Indeed. by well, the way, I, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. This, but... Uh, one of the people who worked on that strike was a, a, a very young teamster named Jimmy Hoffa, and he, mm -hmm. he understood that by trying to shut in, not to try to unionize just one company, but the whole, uh, that the only way truckers could win mm -hmm. was to really shut down the entire uh, Twin City uh, uh, trucking industry. Mm -hmm. um, and when he gained more power in the Teamsters, and that was decades later, he, uh, you know, managed to get uh, first statewide contracts. And then in, in 1965, which is 30 years after the Motor Carrier Act was passed, mm -hmm. um, uh, he, he crafted the Interstate Master Freight Agreement, which 800 companies signed on to, and mm -hmm. which essentially unionized 450,000 Teamsters. And this was hailed at the time, the New York Times editorial saying this is something, then they said, this is something basic, that if, if they had written in my voice, they, they would have said something new under the American <laughs> sun. Indeed. But it took 30 years. In this case, you know, we don't know uh, when uh, workers in fast food outlets will actually be union members. Uh -huh. But we know that they're getting some of the benefits that come with union membership, even though they're not union members. 
um, through the uh, act that uh, Gavin Newsom signed. Well, let's talk about that. And actually, I, I just want to note, as, as I was looking at this, uh, that uh, Depression-era 1935 uh, Motor Carrier Act, that was, it was 1936 when union support, according to Gallup, was 72%. Now it's 71%. I don't know if these things work hand-in-hand hand or not. Uh, but I it, wish they did. <laughs> it is interesting to note. And, and as noted, a plan B, or as you now describe it, plan C, actually sounds like a better plan to sort of deal with all of the shops across, in one sense, you know, across all uh, a particular sector, in this case, the fast food sector, with its huge number of workers, and now supported in one sense by the state itself. That almost sounds like a better plan than a store-by-store -store unionization plan. What, what are the downsides of what Newsom has now signed into law, which essentially uh, sets up a 10-person council of um, uh, managed with franchise owners, uh, two from uh, two people from the corporate chains, two fast food workers, two advocates, likely from uh, SEIU, and two who are the governor's appointees to sort of work together. W what are the uh, what are the downsides of this plan uh, that concern you? Well, there are, there there are a couple. Um, uh, one is uh, you, you could uh, you know. Uh, this doesn't, in a certain sense, obviate the need for a union. I mean, had SEIU not already been mm -hmm. a hugely powerful union in California, and mm -hmm. in California, SEIU has 700,000 members. Yeah. That's clout. Right. You know, the only comparably powerful union, I think, in California is uh, the California Teachers Association. Mm -hmm. And I think they have just about half the number of uh, members in California that SEIU has. So that's real clout. And if, you know, unions don't grow, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to have that, the kind of clout required to get this kind of legislation through. So that's, that's point one. Point mm -hmm. two is that it's always possible that workers seeing the benefits coming from this particular act will think that the need to unionize is, you know, is, isn't, isn't really there. Mm. Now, there's a caveat to that, and this has not been widely reported, but the bill creates uh, a possible opt-out, which is if uh, a franchise or a company agrees to let its workers, you know, uh, uh, join unions by, say, car check, or anyway, the, the company will remain neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, they are then... Uh, uh, relieved from some of the things that this Council of Ten uh, can mandate. Mm. Uh, of course, in a union contract, they'll probably get those anyway, but that kind of gives SEIU a clear uh, interest in the bill as, as one possible almost sort of backdoor way of actually gaining members. Mm -hmm. And then the third problem with the bill uh, isn't with the bill. It's that it's... Uh, creating a, a totally anticipatable backlash mm -hmm. among the McDonald's and uh, uh, jack-in-the-boxes of this world and, mm -hmm. and many franchise owners who less than 24 hours after Newsom signed the bill said they were going to put an initiative, mm -hmm. a referendum, mm -hmm. on the 2024 ballot as, uh, to convince voters to, uh, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. negate the law. Um <laughs> Uh, to uh, uh, repeal it, in essence. 
So, uh, the, you know, uh, well, California already went through uh, a, a ballot measure put on the ballot by Uber and Lyft and such mm-hmm. uh, to strike down uh, a law which uh, was passed to uh, give more income and rights to, uh, you know, gig, uh, gig workers like right. drivers for mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft and so on. And those companies spent a gazillion dollars and uh, uh, persuaded voters who were really kind of confused by the measure anyway uh, to strike down that law. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to see a similar campaign, uh, absolutely, assuming that these guys, that they can uh, collect enough signatures by the end of the year to put this on the uh, 2024 ballot. So we're going to see that coming at uh, California voters Unfortunately, uh, fairly, you know, in, uh, yeah. in two years' time. Well, there's also another side of that, Harold Meyerson, which is that, uh, you know, along with uh, setting up ten member, uh, a 10-member council, uh, it also sets the bill, also sets a minimum hourly wage for the half-million workers in the sector at $22 an hour, stipulates that wage will be adjusted annually in accordance with Consumer Price Index. And one of the reasons that we've been told around the country that fast food workers were not even worth a $15 minimum wage is because such a mandate would raise prices of fast food, it would put franchisees out of business. Uh, well, we'll have another year or two under this new law uh, if if the stores do not shut down or go out of business in the wake of this new measure, uh, you know, because prices are raised just so much that, you know, nobody goes there anymore. Well, isn't it arguable that California's experiment here could serve as a helpful example for workers and progressive politicians in other states if the world doesn't collapse in the wake of this it, it, uh, law? It could, but two, two caveats here. First yeah. of all, if uh, I, I think uh, the uh, franchise industry has until some point in late November or early December to collect uh, the required number of you know validatable uh, signatures mm-hmm. uh, to put this on the 2024 ballot. If they do, uh, then the law doesn't go into effect ah. uh, until after that 2024 vote. So ah. that is a, that is a big problem. If okay. they fail to come. If they fail to collect uh, the signatures, then the law goes into effect. They can always then put an initiative on the ballot, but at that point they would be effectively demanding a wage cut mm. uh, for half a million workers and their families, right. and et cetera. And that that would be, uh, you know, uh, that would be harder for them to get uh, to get voters to go for. So, so, so their race uh, is on. A, to... it, it's a real question. Then also, you yeah. know, look. Uh, we don't know if the price of food generally, uh, which has been obviously, you know, uh, rising mm-hmm. uh, significantly over the last year, mm-hmm. we, we don't know if that's going to be the case in 2024. Uh, and that will have, I think, some effect uh, on uh, on the vote then. Uh, if, if food is viewed as, you know, uh, increasingly uh, costly and continues to be, uh, by then that too would... Uh, make it easier for the industry to uh, to win that uh, mm-hmm. win that vote, mm-hmm. and you can all, you always blame it on uh, Gavin Newsom and those uh, Trotskyite Democrats in California. Right. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Now the um, and, and by the way, I should note there's also as as you note uh, the math of this uh, the way this ten member state mandated council is set up. It actually could be swung in favor of business and management in the event that a Republican gubernatorial uh, administration takes over, no? 
Yeah, but I think at this point, the chances of Republicans winning the governorship and other statewide offices is to get back to our metaphor of this <laughs> conversation. It's about the same as the Trotskyists uh, <laughs> winning in California. Uh, you know, uh, uh-huh. the, the, the California, you know, beyond all the demographic changes and everything else that has shifted California well to the left, uh, Republicans in the state have also done a spectacular job of marginalizing themselves. So, that, that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe 40 years from now, uh, or 30 years from now, Republicans, uh, whatever they consist of, could win, but not not in the foreseeable future. I got two questions uh, to ask you real quickly before we get out, uh, Harold. Uh, fighting for workers, you know, has always seemed like a no-brainer to me. There's more workers than, than business owners, etc., uh, which means there's more voters to seemingly support pro-worker politicians. And yet the anti-union forces in this country have been wildly successful in recent decades. Uh, to what do you do, uh, attribute this enormous chasm between the real support for the American people by the American people for labor unions, as noted in that Gallup study, and the number of unions and unionized workers that seem to be shrinking or that at least have been, particularly in the private sector, in uh, in recent decades? Well, I attribute it to uh, the fact that uh, labor law has been so eroded that management can break the labor law by firing organizers and firing union activists during organizing drives mm. and face no uh, no real penalties. Uh, you know, it takes years to adjudicate. It has taken years to adjudicate those kinds of uh, violations. Mm. And even if the employer is found guilty, all that employer has to do is rehire uh, the fired worker, mm-hmm. this could be years after the organizing drive has mm-hmm. failed, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pay the worker's back pay unless the worker has since gotten another job, which if he has, that's subtracted from what the employer owes. And he has to, the employer has to post a notice somewhere in the workplace that this has happened. <laughs> so effectively, uh, that's no penalty at all. Right. Now, Biden has appointed some terrific pro-labor people to key positions, mm-hmm. most especially Jennifer Abruzzo to be the uh, uh, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. And she's, you know, taking labor law back to the way it was under Harry Truman, so that, among other things, if uh, a worker is fired and during an organizing drive, as was the case in the successful organizing drive for the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, yeah. Uh, she, she has manned, said that it's a violation in real time, and the worker gets to be reinstated mm-hmm. right then, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, which hasn't been really the standard in labor law for 70 years. Mm. So within the administration, there are, you know, uh, there are people trying to uh, restore labor law as best they can, uh, but it really requires congressional legislation, and uh, there's something called the PRO Act, Mm-hmm. which has passed the House, but of course has not passed the Senate, which would, you know, really bolster, uh, uh, eliminate all the holes in labor law that right-wing judges and uh, uh, employers uh, influencing right-wing judges mm-hmm. have put there over the last uh, several generations. Which... Um, you know, we may, uh, there's clearly a popular pro-union majority in the, in the nation, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not reflected uh, in the c- composition and beliefs of the folks who sit on the uh, federal courts. 
Maybe we can begin to change that uh, between now and November. Uh, Harold, uh, last time that you were on with us, it was way back in January, I I look back, and it looks like it was just after Joe Manchin had finally killed Joe Biden's Build Back Better Act uh, in the Senate, and uh, seemingly Biden and, and the Democrats' domestic agenda along with it. At the time... You described Omicron, inflation, Manchin, and Kirsten Cinema as the four horsemen of democratic decline. And you said you suggested that passing a scaled back Build Back Better bill would certainly help extricate the Democrats from the problems they were facing at that point. Well, what do you know? They must be reading the prospect because that is exactly what they ended up doing with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So, uh, Harold Meyerson, uh, will that help? What kind of difference is the uh, IRA likely to have on the upcoming midterms just under eight weeks from today? Sure, sure it'll help. Uh, uh, You know, in, in conjunction with the CHIPS Act, uh, and the Infrastructure Act, um, yeah, uh, and the reduction of at least, uh, you know, a fraction of student debt. All of that, uh, you know, you can't, no one is saying Joe Biden is a uh, do-nothing president at this point, or mm-hmm. even that this is a do-nothing Congress. So all of that helps, uh, but the fact that, you know, judges are in a different place from the rest of the country mm. on uh labor. Yeah. Well, they were in a different place in the rest of the country on abortion. And mm-hmm. that's really the one thing that you know gives the Democrats uh, a fighting chance in November. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how that comes out. Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of The American Prospect, which you can and should read at prospect.org. You can also find him on Twitter at Harold Meyerson. Harold, always great catching up with you, sir. I look forward to doing it uh, maybe not quite as many months uh, as as it was the last time. Thanks, Harold. Thank you, Brad. You bet. Okay, we have got to get out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, thanks to our, uh, our producer, Desi Doyen. Of course, thanks to Harold and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We greatly appreciate it. It's always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, where you can also share it with your friends and your family and your coworkers and your enemies. That is all thanks to those of you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.